Our scripture reading today is chapter 16 of the book of Isaiah. Uh, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Chapter 16, Isaiah, starting in verse 1. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah by the way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab and the fords of Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice. Make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcast. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail. Mourn, utterly stricken, for the raisin cakes of Kir Hesheth. For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma, the lords of the nations, have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazir and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazir for the vine of Sibma. O Heshbon and Eliah, for over your summer fruit and your harvest the shout has ceased, and the joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in the vineyards no songs are sung, no cheers are raised. No treader treads out wine in the passes. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, and my inmost self for Kir Hesheth. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt. In spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be few, very few and feeble. Thank you. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. In John Bunyan's, uh, John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress is perhaps one of the greatest works of Christian metaphorical literature to have ever been written. Uh, if you haven't read it before, I highly recommend reading that book. The story tells of a man who, after, after reading of the impending destruction of his hometown, that is the city of destruction, in his little book, which happens to be the Bible, he became burdened over his own sin— and began to seek to free himself and others of this burden. No one listened to him. In fact, everyone in town, including his own wife and children, dismissed him as a crazy person. Then Christian met a man named Evangelist, who told him where he could go to be freed from his burden. He needed to go to the wicked gate by way of the narrow path that would lead to the cross. After much hardship, he made it to the cross where his burden, on its own accord, fell off his back. 
The path continued to the celestial city where the rest of his journey took him. On his way, he met many people on the path, each with a lesson in, in our own Christian walk. Some of those people walked with Christian as companions. Many tried to convince Christian and his compatriots to remove from the path and to go back home. One companion was a man named Faithful. While Christian and Faithful journeyed together, they encountered someone which really, as I, as I read this recently, challenged me. They met a man named Talkative. Doesn't sound like me at all, does it? They met a man named Talkative. I hope this isn't true of me, though. Talkative spoke all the right words. He knew the right things to say to make you believe that he was indeed a true pilgrim, a true believer. But Christian recognized him, um, that rec uh, recognized in him that all he said was nothing more than talk. Christian actually knew Talkative from his own hometown. He had heard of him before. He had known him before. <clears throat> and he knew that apart from his words, his life did not match the life of a pilgrim. Faithful was not convinced, so Christian gave instruction how to challenge Talkative. Faithful thought he might have actually been a true pilgrim, so Christian said, here's how you can find out if he's a true pilgrim. Faithful engaged Talkative with piercing questions about his experience of salvation. How was it that Talkative felt? Oh, how was it that, um, essentially he asked him, like, how, 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 did it, how did it come about that you felt remorse for your sin? And came to Christ. When Faithful asked this question, Talkative was confused rather than willing to talk. He was confused by the question. As Faithful continued questioning about Talkative's experience and his walk with Christ, Talkative became more and more uncomfortable. You see, Talkative knew all the right words, he knew theology, he knew Bible verses. He could even convince many people that he was genuine by his smooth words. But at the end of the day, his testimony revealed that his heart was far from receiving gospel light. He made mental assent to the statements of truth, but he never experienced grace because he never felt the weight of sin. He had detached theological truth from a life of repentance and submission to Christ. He had memorized the right words, but never thought he actually needed to walk in obedience as a result. We might say that he fell into the sin of antinomianism, where obedience to Christ, obedience to Scripture does not really matter. All you have to do is believe, and then you can live however you want to. Talkative was all talk and no action. Now, our salvation is not a salvation that comes by our works. It is by faith in Christ's works, his righteousness, his death and resurrection. But while our salvation is not a result of our obedience, we don't get saved by being obedient, scripture is clear that true saving faith will produce delightful obedience. True saving faith will produce delightful obedience. Saving faith produces obedience because the true Christian will come to Scripture and not making, without making excuses for their sin. 
The true believer knows that they are a sinner. And thus, when the mirror of Scripture shows them what they really look like, they repent of that sin, agreeing with God's word about who they really are. Further, the true believer conforms to biblical commands out of delight. Out of delight. It's not merely a duty to obey Christ, as if, as if Christ is some dictator that demands obedience just for the sake of, obe- of demanding obedience. Rather, the true believer sees obedience to Christ as a delight. When scripture tells me that I must not gossip, it is a delight to return to my king the honor and worship due him through my refusal to participate in or spread gossip. With that in mind, let us turn to our text and see how these truths play out in the life of Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, says this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations and for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. 
Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among uh, among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I make a morsel of bread. Well, I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after, you may, after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent and Sarah, uh, to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this passage. Lord, there are so many truths that we can glean from this passage, so many aspects of life that we could travel through. But Lord, I pray that, that the message today will hit on the head the lesson that you intend us to learn from this passage. Pray that you would help us to, to draw near to you as we, as we open up the meaning of this passage, this text. In your name, amen. The outline itself this morning comes from Abraham Curavilla's commentary on Genesis. Um, the, outline, the outline, just the main points, um, uh, the rest of it is filled in from, from the rest of my study and things of that nature. But I wanted to make sure credit is given where credit is due. I am not nearly as intelligent as this guy. And so uh, if you think the structure of that sermon was really good, let Dr. Curavilla know. 
Don't tell me. <laughs> In our passage this morning, we see, first of all, that there is a condition for God's blessing. That's a walk with God. There's a condition for God's blessing, and that is a walk before God. Verses 1 and 2 open up this passage with a surprising, uh, surprising imperative. An imperative being a command. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, and I'll think back again, what does that mean, right? In the passage right before it, if you look just in the verse before it, Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. This is now 13 years later, 13 years of God's silence, 13 years of continuing to wait for for the promise to be fulfilled of 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 a promised seed. Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. The blessings that God wants to give to Abraham are conditioned upon a walk before God. They're conditioned on a walk before God. He gives two imperatives. He gives, he says, walk before me and be blameless. Some translations may say, be perfect. So what do these two imperatives mean? These are commands from the Lord to Abraham about what he's supposed to do in order to partake in the covenant blessing. What does this mean? First of all, let's look at this phrase, walk before me. Walk before me. One commentator explains that to walk before God means to live and move openly before him, especially in such a way as to deserve and enjoy his approval and favor. Thus, Abraham was to live his life in a manner pleasing in God's sight. He's to walk before God. He's to live his life openly. His life is an open book before the Lord. And he's supposed to walk in a manner that God would say, that's how my people ought to walk. And then he also further tells them to be blameless. To be blameless. This means to be undivided, simple, complete, perfect, wholeheartedly blameless. Abraham was to be in his heart and soul, wholly oriented with the Lord and wholly committed to his way with no subsidiary loyalties adulterating his commitment. Perfectly obedient to the Lord, perfectly in line with the Lord, have an undivided obedience and, and, and uh, loyalty to the Lord. Walk before the Lord, live openly before him, and walk with undivided, undivided loyalties. This is what is commanded of Abraham. Before we move forward here, let's think about this. How, how in the world does this match up with the unconditional nature of the covenant we saw in Genesis 15? Right? Just a couple of chapters ago, God had made this covenant with Abraham. And he inaugurated the covenant with this circuit, with this, with this sacrifice wherein only God himself passed through the sacrifice, showing that this, this is an unconditional covenant, that Abraham's obedience does not destroy the covenant. How does that make sense with what's going on here? How do we match these two things together? Well, throughout Scripture we see 
the idea of faith and works working together. Now, we, as we already said, works, our works, our goodness does not save us, right? We cannot get to God based on our own works. No, no matter how many towers of Babel we build to try to get back to God, we can never do it. We can't. Yet, the book of James teaches us that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Jesus in his great commission, commands us to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. We're given a direct call that part of gospel work, part of gospel life, is to teach them that which which has been commanded. Paul in Romans chapter 6 says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? I heard a great illustration yesterday. Have you ever thought of or tried to ride a bicycle with only one pedal? Just imagine in your own head. It would seem kind of silly and probably be a whole lot more difficult than it would otherwise be, right? Trying to walk a Christian life, right, with faith and no works, or with works and no faith, is like trying to ride a bicycle with only one pedal. It's not going to work. Right? It's, you're going to fail. You need both faith and works in order for the, bi- the, pedal of, the, the bicycle of salvation, if you will, to continue forward. Now again, that does not mean that works saves you, as we already mentioned. True faith will produce works. I believe this is what God is getting at here. Abraham, you've been saved by faith. You, were, you had faith in me, Genesis 15, and that was counted to you as righteousness. Now live out that faith. That faith requires an obedience. That faith will produce an obedience. And here's what you need to do here. He says, so walk before me and be blameless. You've been saved by your faith. Now walk before me and be blameless. The task isn't over yet. Salvation is the first step. It's not the end of the steps. It's the beginning, not the end. Yes, faith is needed at all points. Faith and grace are needed at all points. But we must walk in obedience. True faith produces obedience. It produces submission to the word of God. It does not try to figure out how a passage of scripture does not relate to me. It doesn't open up a passage and say, well, that one, that one doesn't have anything to do with me. Right? That passage was something else. That has nothing to do with me anymore. True religion, true repentance, true faith does not try to find out how a passage of Scripture does not apply, but rather agrees with the text about my sinfulness and engages with fervor to crucify the old flesh, to mortify sin in our lives through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. To walk in obedience ought to be a delight for the believer, not a burden. Right? We, we may think of this as like, oh, well, now I have to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and this, this drudgery. We may think of how we, how we may picture the pure early Puritans, right? As just sad face and, oh, I've got to do this, and now I can't do this, and I can't do this. 
Have you ever read Puritan works? They delight in obedience to God. Yes, it was a struggle. Yes, mortifying sin is not easy. It was never easy, not even for the Puritans. But it was their absolute delight. I've been reading a biography this week of, uh, of Jonathan Edwards. His wife, Sarah, describes how she was delighted to be submitted to God's authority. It was a delight to her to be obedient to God's word. The same could be said of her husband, Jonathan. It is a delight for the believer, not a burden. So we see that this covenant blessing does require obedience. It it requires a walk before God. We secondly see in the text then, this walk before God involves faith that neither Abraham nor Sarah exhibited. This walk before God involves faith that neither Abraham nor Sarah exhibited. No, let's remember back. We've already read the passage, right? Later on, God tells Abraham this, and what does Abraham do? He starts to kind of laugh. How, the, how in the world is a guy that's 99 years old going to have a baby? That's not going to happen, right? How is that possible? And my wife's 90 years old, right? Anybody in their 90s right now or getting close to it? What if God came up to you and said, you're going to have a baby next year? Wow, wow. Come on now, out of the mouth of babes, right? <laughs> um, but again, imagine it. Imagine some of you are who are in later years of your life. Imagine if God came to you and said, you're going to have a child. He'd be like, I don't think so. Now, let's notice there's a difference here in between Abraham's laughing and Sarah's laughing. Right? When Abraham laughs at this in the early in chapter 17, Does God rebuke him for that? No. Remember, though, Abraham has come a long way from Genesis chapter 12. Abraham started with pretty weak faith. Very, very, very weak faith. And he's been continuing to grow in that. I'm sure at this point, this laughter is like, God, I I know you're going to do it. I'm just having a really hard time seeing it. Sure, it's probably going to happen. Come on, like, this is really difficult. It's really difficult to wrap my mind around this. And maybe the laughter is also a bit of laughter of joy. Like, is this still going to happen? Like, are you serious? Whereas Sarah in chapter 18, when she overhears in the tent, as the Lord is speaking with Abraham, she laughs. But her laughter is much more divisive. It's more of a wicked laughter. It's a faithless laughter. She says, the way of women is past me. I can't have kids anymore. You're crazy to say that I'm going to have a kid. I, I already tried to make a plan for that, right? That's why we did what we did to get Ishmael born, right? Because I can't do this anymore. I'm not able to have kids anymore. It's not possible. Right? She comes at this from disbelief, or Abraham's was probably a shred of disbelief, but not nearly the same level as Sarah's. Where so then God rebukes Sarah for her laughter. And then Sarah tries to cover it up, right? And then God says, no, 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 you did laugh. And it's interesting how God then says, you're going to name your child Isaac, which means son of laughter. 
Every time you call your kid, every time you're scolding your child, like your two-year-old, right? I've got a two-year-old. Every time you're telling your two-year-old, quit climbing on the steps, quit trying to play with the candles, quit doing that, knock it off, stop it. Nope, we got to change your clothes. We got to do this. Ah, right? Every time you say, Isaac, you're going to be reminded, I didn't have faith that this was going to happen. I laughed. And not only that, but God is faithful. It's going to remind me that God is faithful and that Isaac is a delight to the Lord. Not only a delight to us that turned our, our, our faithless laughter into joyful laughter, but now that same laughter is also, this joy is also the joy of the Lord. What a reminder. So this walk before God involves faith. It involves a very strong faith that both of them are still struggling with. Right? But isn't it interesting how much closer this happens, right? Abraham is 75 years old when he first hears about, about the fact that he's going to have a son, right? This is 25 years later, right? Just about 25 years later. And God says, it's going to happen next year. Like, whoa, like I've been really struggling through this for the last 25 years and now it's actually going to happen. What, a joy, what joyful news that was going to be. But we also see this, this blessing that God wants to give of a son. It, it, this blessing is not only for himself, but it also is going to include those who are associated with Abraham. Look back to the beginning of chapter 17. He tells Abraham that my covenant is with you, verse 4. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. This blessing that is going to be given you, it's not going to be just for you and Sarah. It's going to be a blessing to all the nations. It's going to extend much more beyond you. And this is further shown in the fact that God changes his name. He says, no longer are you going to be Abram, right? Which means father or exalted father. But now your name is going to be Abraham, which means a father of a multitude. Same thing he tells Sarah. He tells Abraham that we're going to, he's going to change Sarah's name too. No longer is she going to be Sarai, but Sarah. Now both of those names mean princess. All right, both of those, her, 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 Sarai and Sarah both mean princess, but there's still a change of name. Now, why does God change names? We see this throughout scripture that God changes people's names. Why is he changing Abraham's name? Why is he changing Sarah's name? What's going on here? One commentator says that to change a name usually meant to change a person's status or circumstance. In this passage, the new name served as reminders of God's pledge of the promise. God is saying, I'm going to do this. And you know what I'm going to prove to you? I'm changing your name. You're no longer going to be Abram, just an exalted father. You're going to be father of nations. Kings are going to come from you. And so I'm changing Sarah's name, Sarah's name. I'm going to change it to Sarah just to really solidify the fact that she's going to be a princess. She's going to, from her is going to come kings. And all the nations are going to be blessed through you. Isn't it true that our name is, is changed in some degree when we receive Christ? Our identity is changed. Our circumstances have changed. Maybe not our earthly circumstances, but our spiritual circumstances certainly changed. And we are given a new name. That name of Christ. Or his identity, or our identity becomes wrapped up in his own as we are covered in his righteousness. 
But likewise, as we see in the text, removal from the community of faith may lead to a loss of blessing. Look at this. Look at what happens with Ishmael. Ishmael is brought up. God says, couldn't you just, just let Ishmael be the guy. Let Ishmael be the promised son. Right? He's 13 years old now. I'm ready to, ready to pass everything on to Ishmael now. Does this sound familiar? Abraham ready to pass on his lineage to somebody else that's not the promised son. Here he is ready to pass everything off to Ishmael. Just let Ishmael be this guy. Be the promised seed. God says, no, it's not it. Right? But I'll still have a blessing for him. And notice that this blessing is, is continued on as long as he is in the covenant household. Just like it was for Hagar. As long as she went back to Abram and went back to the household, she would be under the same blessing that comes from Abram. Same thing now with Ishmael and Abraham. I will establish my covenant with him, verse 19, as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him faithful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, which will, which will, princes, which we'll find out about in chapter 25. And I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at, the time, at this time next year. But if you look before that, in verse 14, after describing circumcision, he says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This covenant relationship is contingent on being, a, being with the community of faith, being identified with this community, with Abraham's faith community. Now, Ishmael, we know hap what happens to, we may, well, Ishmael, right, like his mother, returned the blessing only based on their association with Abraham. As long as he remained, he was blessed, though he was not the agent of the covenant, right? Even though he was not Isaac, he was not the one who was the agent of the covenant, he would still be blessed as long as he remained associated with Abraham. Now, we can tell this, we know this, we know that this blessing is, is, seems to have been lost, because Ishmael quickly drops out of the picture after chapter 25. We're described some of the descendants of Ishmael, but Ishmael doesn't really play a role in the rest of the text. He kind of disappears. It seems that his removal from Abraham led to a loss of his blessing. As he departed from the faith community, he lost some of that blessing. Hebrews, 20, 10, 20, Hebrews chapter 10 deals with this issue similarly for the Christian. We are not connected in the same way through circumcision in the church. We'll talk about that here in just a second, but we do have, uh, there is, there is um, instruction here concerning being connected with the faith community. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. These are blessings that God is, is recounting. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. True heart, full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's a lot of blessings right there. All right, continue on. Let us hold fast, fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now get this. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How are these blessings guaranteed to the New Testament people of God? By not neglecting to meet together. These spiritual blessings that God gives his people. Addition, in addition to salvation, let me be clear. In addition to salvation, these extra things that, that are received by God's people. Right? Assurance of faith. Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, bodies washed with pure water, holding fast to the confession of hope without wavering because he is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. These things will not happen if we are not connected to the people of faith. There's a contingency here to be associated with the people of God. Maintaining these blessings comes through not neglecting to meet together. Secondly, we see in the passage that there's a commitment to God's blessing. We see here that, there, that God does give this blessing and that blessing is, comes from a walk before him. Now we see that there is an act of dedication that takes place as a commitment to God's blessing. We see this here in chapter 17, verses 9 through 14. It says, uh, is when God establishes the, the covenant of circumcision, right? He says, you're going to take every male and you're going to do this circumcision without going into detail about what exactly that is. It's a very personal and uh, a very personal sign that God says is a sign to, uh, to recognize the covenant. Now, why circumcision? I mean, why? What's the point of that? Right, this, is a, this could be a tough question. Sometimes we may think of this and say, why did God establish circumcision as a sign of a covenant? Why, why, couldn't there be something else that he could have done? That seems like an odd thing to do, and that seems like an odd thing to ask a, a 99-year-old man and his 13-year-old son and all of their household servants to go ahead and do that. Seems like kind of an odd thing to do. So why circumcision? What's going on here? It seems an odd way to mark the covenant. Alan Ross gives some insight. He says, quote, The rite of circumcision was appropriate to the nature of the covenant. I get this. With this symbol, God instructed his people regarding the joining of faith with the act of reproduction. The sign was sexual. The promise was for a seed. Right? He had promised Abraham that a seed would come. So it makes sense then that this sign would be taking place in this way. The covenanters will be reminded, one, that human nature alone was unable to generate the promised seed if God was not willing to grant such fruitfulness. And two, that impurity must be laid aside, especially in marriage. The sign formed a covenant, a constant reminder for the people to preserve the purity of marriage in order to produce a godly seed. That's why. Why circumcision? That's the kind of reminder it's supposed to give us that only through God could this, excuse me, could this promised seed that would bless all the nations come, up, come about. Only through the Lord could that take place. Only with marital purity was it possible for this to happen and to come forward. Now clearly, in the history of Israel, 
If you read the rest of the Old Testament, we see that this covenant side did very little to keep God's people committed to God. Even though they had this sign, did very little. See, the people of Israel continually rebelling against God, the fleshly sign, was meant to point to a divine reality. Circumcision of the flesh would only be beneficial if the individual recognized the reason for it and placed their faith in God. This is why in the New Testament, Paul adamantly argued that Gentile believers should not be forced to circumcise themselves. The sign pointed ultimately to the reality of Christ. He is the promised seed. Now that the promised seed has come, the sign is no longer needed. Right? Now that the promised seed has come, the, 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 now that they have the reality, they no longer had a need for the sign. Now for us, the sign of the new covenant that most relates to circumcision is probably the Lord's Supper. There are many denominations that think that it would be baptism, and they use that as an argument for infant baptism. But however, it doesn't seem that this is the case. Right? Circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. So what's the sign of the new covenant? Well, Jesus is pretty explicit about this as he gives the instructions for the Lord's Supper. He says, this is the sign of the new covenant purchased in my blood. Lord's Supper is the sign. Communion, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, that's the sign that Christ says, this is the sign that points to the new covenant in my blood. He also said, he, he does not say this of baptism. He doesn't say, baptism, this is the sign of the new covenant. No, he says that about communion, about Lord's Supper. He also says this do in remembrance of me. Remember, circumcision was meant to point to and help us to help the people of Israel to remember that Christ was going to come. Jesus says this you do in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper, I'm pointing here because that's where the Lord's Supper table is. Yeah, anyway, sorry. Um, this do in remembrance of me. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is the same purpose as circumcision. It fulfills that same role. In the Lord's Supper, we are also called, like the circumcision should have drawn people to do, we are called to examine ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just like the covenant of circumcision would have done for the people of Israel. It should have reminded them, caused, called them to examine themselves, caused, caused them to remember the covenant God had made with them. So God initiates circumcision as a sign as a covenantal sign for the people of Israel. He initiates that, gives, gives Abraham this means to, to give a sign to help him remember. Then we see Abraham's response. It's kind of good news, right? Abraham has come a long way from chapter 12. Look how Abraham responds in verse 23. When God had finished talking with him, verse 22, God went up from Abraham. Next verse. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the, among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. Immediate obedience. It's very different than the Abraham of chapter 12, is it not? Abraham in chapter 12, God says, all right, go from the land Go to where I'm going to tell you, leave everybody behind, and go. And he goes, 
Uh, all right, Lot, come on. What? And here it is now. God says, all right, you're going to do this. Perform this rite of circumcision. It's going to be a sign of my covenant. What does he do? Immediately obeys and obeys completely. What an example of faith producing obedience. He doesn't wait till he's a little bit older, right? I'll do that when, when I'm older. I'll do that when I have grandkids. I'll do that when I retire. I'll do that. I'll obey that command when whatever stage of life you want to put it off to. He doesn't do that. Immediately he responds in obedience. His faith produces obedience immediately. As we see Abraham grow in his faith, we see him grow in obedience. And the same is true for us. As we grow in our faith, we ought to grow in obedience. Growing in our faith is not something where we say, well, now that I'm more spiritual, I don't need to obey that stuff anymore. Right, kind of like when we think when we're adults, we no longer have to follow those rules that our mom and dad had for us, right? We try to draw that same analogy to scripture and say, well, now that I'm more spiritual, that stuff doesn't apply to me anymore. But in fact, the exact opposite is true. As Abraham grows in his faith, he becomes more and more dependent on God and grows in his obedience to the Lord. And the same is true for us as we grow in our faith. Growing in faith produces more obedience, a growing obedience. If you have an attitude that says, well, I don't have to obey that, or that part doesn't apply to me, or that, I don't have to, that doesn't matter. I mean, that, that's not a big deal. What scripture would tell us what Abraham's example would show us is that reveals the weakness of our faith, not the strength of our faith. Just as well, acts of dedication such as we have at the Lord's Supper, they help us recall and reorient our walk with God. When we come to the Lord's table, we're not today, but when we do come to the Lord's table, that's what it's designed to do is to help us remember Christ, is to help us remember what he has done for us, reorient our walk with God. This is how, this is, this is a straight path, right? And this is how our lives tend to go, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. What communion, what Lord's Supper is designed to do is to say, all right, we're back on track. And guess what's going to happen next time we do communion? You're going to have to get back on track again. That's the nature of, our, of being on this side of glory. But hopefully, as we grow in our faith, we're less and less off the track. Still off the track, but less and less off the track. We're more and more in line with God. We're never going to be perfect this side of heaven. It's one of the beauties of our sanctification, right? Our walk with Christ, the normal average, if you, in case you're wondering, the normal average walk with Christ looks like this. If you were to put it on a scale, it's up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. Go to Six Flags, look at that stuff. That's what it looks like, right? Look at the, look at the roller coasters at Six Flags. That's what the average spiritual walk with Christ looks like. It's up and down and up and down and up and down. Hopefully those downs are not quite so far as the downs they were before, but it's Walking with the Lord, disobedience, obedience, disobedience, obedience, disobedience, and it continues up and down. Some people, it's a downward track completely. But here's the beauty of all of this. When Christ comes back, if you're truly a believer, when Christ comes back or when we die, 
the end of the line is this. I love this. I've seen a graph of this before. It's got these, uh, it has like four or five different uh, illustrations of what different walks with Christ look like. At the end of every one of them, for the true believer, no matter if they end here or here or here or here, at death or at Christ's return, boop, glorification. Straight up. Straight to glorification. We can never get to glorification this side of heaven. But the goal of the Christian life is to grow closer in our walk with God, and that means growing in obedience to Him. Now let me ask you a tougher question. Do you have true saving faith? Do you have true saving faith? Does your faith draw you to grow in obedience as well? Or have you used your faith as a reason to no longer be obedient? Does your faith draw you to delight in obedience? Or have you taken the opposite path of the legalist who does it out of drudgery? I'll obey him, but I don't really want to. Growing believer with true saving faith is going to delight in obeying the Lord. If you're not, if you're here today and you're not a believer, let me encourage you. There is grace at the foot of the cross. Just like Christian came to the cross and his burden fell off, so can your burden fall off today. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for this day. God, I thank you for, for your word. Lord, I thank you that Abraham was not perfect. Or that even, even when he became a believer, even when his faith was counted to him as righteousness, Lord, it was not the end of the journey for him. He continued to struggle with his faith. But God, I do thank you for the example that he did gave, give, that he did obey you. Lord, you call us to walk before you and be blameless. In the New Testament, it says, be ye holy for I am holy. That never changes. God, I pray that those of us who are true believers would continue to grow in obedience and to delight in that obedience. Lord, you are such a great God for having saved us. We don't deserve that salvation at all. We even talk about and think about our own sinfulness. The fact that you would keep us saved, that you would keep us firm in your hand that no one can pluck us out of. God, What an amazing God you are. How great is our God. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in obedience, Lord, that we would respond as the Holy Spirit has led us to respond today. In your name, amen.